Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The boardroom drama continues. Goldman Sachs uh, said that David Solomon will become the sole president of the bank, elevating him over Harvey Schwartz as the eventual successor to Chief Executive Officer Lloyd Blankfein. Of course, this follows uh, reports on Friday by The Wall Street Journal that Lloyd Blankfein was planning to step down as CEO as early as this year, later in the year. Eric Schatzker joins us now. He's editor at large for Bloomberg. Eric, I want to start with denials by mm-hmm. Lloyd Blankfein uh, that this news came from him over the weekend. And he was sort of uh, saying it's sort of like Huckleberry Finn watching his eulogy. Why the pushback if Goldman Sachs is just going to fan the flames with this announcement today? Well, let's be careful. What Lloyd said was that, as you as you phrased it, that the news did not come from him, which is to say he wasn't the source of the Wall Street Journal report on Friday. But that's all. I'm not sure that I would call that a denial. Um, What it does tell us is that this did not go according to script and that Goldman Sachs, to a certain degree, clearly wasn't in charge of the cadence of events. They might not have proceeded exactly according to Goldman's plan. But nevertheless, here we are. Goldman, whether by hook or by crook, was forced to say that David Solomon is the sole, sole president, excuse me, and the likely successor to Lloyd Blankfein as CEO, if and when that happens. But they decided this a while ago. It wasn't like this happened over the weekend. Uh, A short while, but it was not on Friday. My understanding, having recently spoken, when I say recently, in the last few minutes, to a person uh, with direct knowledge of the situation, is that Lloyd Blankfein met with the rest of the board on February 21st, a regularly scheduled board meeting, at which point he recommended that David Solomon be the sole president of the firm and be his chosen successor. And the board endorsed that recommendation. So shortly thereafter, we can presume Harvey Schwartz was informed of this decision. And then it was up to Harvey to decide what his next move was going to be. Most people under those circumstances on Wall Street choose to leave the firm. There's not much point hanging around the hoop, right? If you're not going to be the centerman. And uh, the problem here is that February 21st is what, almost three weeks ago. Goldman could have done this more elegantly by doing it a little faster. In the end, someone, presumably in the boardroom, although we may never know, decided to have a conversation with the Wall Street Journal and speed things along. At the very least, that's what that conversation resulted in. A pace that Goldman itself perhaps had not signed on to and was not entirely in control of. Eric, shares of Goldman Sachs, they're up about 1.5% uh, right now. Market uh, seems pleased, at least by this news, however it uh, has been disseminated. What can you tell us about Mr. Solomon in terms of what the future of the bank or indeed the financial... I should just say it's not just a bank because while it has an investment bank, they also have now the online lending platform Marcus. They've invested in a kind of online blockchain, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin operation. Those are Those are still very, very small parts of okay, Goldman Sachs, right. right? It's still principally Trading and an advisory banking. firm, right, that does 
principally M&A work, but also equity capital markets and debt capital markets. And it does sales and trading. What can I tell you about David Solomon? He is a leveraged finance banker. That's how he started his career at Drexel. He went on to do it at Bear Stearns. He came into Goldman Sachs in 1999 as a partner, hired as a partner from the outside, very rare, and went on to build Goldman's debt capital markets business. The firm was almost nowhere in DCM until David Solomon showed up on the scene, and that's why he was hired. He did so so successfully that he became the president, or at least the head of investment banking at Goldman Sachs. He's not, in that sense, an M&A guy like Hank Paulson was. He's more of a financier. He belongs, if you will, more in the modern financial market, perhaps, than the kind of M&A guy who grew up, as Paulson did, under Gus Levy and perhaps under Steve Friedman and Bob Rubin right. back in the 1980s. So what can we infer from the fact that Harvey Schwartz was kind of pushed aside? I mean, he was head of the trading desk. We know we can do more than infer because the same person who told me about the February 21st meeting also shared with me some of the reasons why David Solomon was chosen over Harvey Schwartz. He's a better client guy, even though Harvey Schwartz was the CFO prior to becoming co-president and spent tons mean? of time he's with clients. He's more fun to be with? You might say that. He gets, he's, look, I've spent lots of time with David Solomon. When I say lots, enough time with David Solomon to know what kind of a person he is. He is a fun guy to be with. He's gregarious. He is an infectious personality. He's good at making conversation. Harvey is a little more buttoned up and buttoned down, if you will. He isn't as emotive as David is. These are my own personal uh, observations. Furthermore, David worked very hard to get in front of investors over that 15-month period when he and Harvey were co-presidents. He had some 25 one-on-one -on -one meetings with major investors. Um, they like the fact that he has been pushing for diversity at the firm and also spending a lot of time getting to know the younger cohort at Goldman Sachs, which of course is the firm's future as it is at any firm. They like the fact that Goldman is at a point in its trajectory where it's going to have to start building again if it wants to grow. Goldman is going to have to find new things to do. To go back to your point, uh, Pim, Goldman is going to have to light a fire into this consumer finance platform, Marcus, that they have online. They're going to have to make a choice as to how big a business they want to build in crypto. They're going to have to rebuild to a degree the fixed income currency and commodities business, not because it's broken, but it isn't performing as well on a relative basis as Morgan Stanley's or JP Morgan's or Citigroup's or even Bank of America's. These are some of the things that Goldman's going to have to do. And the board appears to have decided that David is a better guy to get that done than Harvey Schwartz or together. So David's the sole president in line to succeed Lloyd Blankfein. We still don't know when that's going to happen. And um, if we do, you're going to be the person I'll be who's here. going to tell us. Thanks very much, uh, Eric Schatzker, editor-at-large for Bloomberg News, giving us all the details about Goldman Sachs. Well, we want to visit now with Stephen DeSanctis. He is Managing Director for Small Cap and Mid Cap Stocks at Jefferies. He's Managing Director there. And I want to thank you very much for being here in our 1130 studio. Uh, Stephen, good morning. thanks for thank being you. here. Thanks for having me. Uh, go ahead. Make the case for uh, uh, small and mid cap stocks, particularly in this kind of rate environment and in where we are in the business cycle. 
Great. So you know what? I think the first thing is that um, we actually got more positive on small cap stocks in um, in February after the big sell-off. I think a lot of the run in January was big inflows into large cap ETFs, into passive, try to get exposure. So as that trade unwinds itself, I think that's going to be beneficial for, for small and mid. And then relative valuations have really come in pretty dramatically. Really, small cap stocks have underperformed since 2014, of course, they had a big run in in 16, but relative to large caps, the valuations got better. Earnings growth in this kind of environment, when you're going to get 3% GDP, you're going to see better earnings growth down the market cap. And then the interesting thing on, on the rate side, yeah, higher rates will lead to lower overall returns, but if rates are going up for the right reasons, better economic growth, that's generally better for small mid-cap companies. So how much do you expect, uh, for example, the Russell 2000 to outperform this year? So we've got a target of 1664 or so, so about 8% on the upside there. I think you've got a little more room to go since really we made our call. Smalls outperform large by a little over 2%. And I could see that kind of continuing to widen. One of the things that we pointed out for this year was that, you know, last year was such a calm market that volatility is going to pick up. And so with that, you get more opportunities to play small and mid-cap versus large-cap style, more sector rotation. A whole host of things are going to happen this year that probably didn't happen last year. Let's talk about some specific industry groups in order to narrow down the the areas people should focus on. Discretionary, technology, industrials? Uh, more no. materials, actually. Materials, okay. Yeah. So why, the way, why those? So what we're looking at is trying to base it on our sort of themes. So one theme would be growth stocks over value stocks, just real general there. And the argument here is that growth is still a lot cheaper than value. I know everybody says tech has had great performance in 17. It's continuing 18. People tend to forget that in 16, tech was a weak performer. And so you're kind of getting back what you lost in 16, and then the earnings growth has been really good. So we like tech to sort of represent our more growth-oriented kind of biased. Materials and energy are two groups that we like as well. That kind of gives us a cyclical bias. So global growth gets better. You should see commodity prices rise, including oil. That gives you the bet on energy. To play higher interest rates, I think the way we would look at this would be financials and the smaller banks generally do a lot better with Rates going higher from a profitability standpoint. I think it comes also more down to deregulation. Deregulation where ROEs have been suppressed. Now they can rise and then maybe we get a little M&A. And then for consumer discretionary, I just think the earnings numbers have gotten pretty low. And so the bar is, is, is really low. So the companies are beating numbers by a pretty wide margin. We're starting to see sentiment turn around. And quite frankly, it's the only area that's really really a value. You kind of look through the universe, you say, okay, what's cheap? You got to think about it from a relative perspective. Now that's a group that actually looks good on an absolute basis as well. A lot of people say that uh, mid and small caps actually offer some protection from even trade skirmishes just because they depend less on international uh, types of revenues. Is that one argument as well for you? I don't use that particular argument. So I'll go two things. (laughs) One is that- You're like, no, but I'll add it in there. Well, the way we think of 
about it is more from a positioning standpoint. I like companies that do have overseas exposure. However, I've not found a good relationship between the dollar and small mid-cap performance. I mean, it's kind of an easy thing to kind of go to. I think, again, people sort of forget that a lot of small cap companies and mid-cap companies are suppliers to the large cap companies. So the large cap companies have problems. They're in the supply chain. They're in the they're in the hair, you know, the crosshairs. The other thing is a stronger dollar generally means that if the dollar starts to appreciate for whatever reason, you end up, it's usually a risk-off environment. Think about 15 and 16, the dollar appreciated and small really took it on the chin in that period. So I think you kind of think about it from more of a positioning standpoint, kind of the positioning on met, on materials. A weaker dollar gives you better, you know, backdrop for materials. A weaker dollar gives you potentially higher oil prices. That's kind of the way I think about it. So real quick, what keeps you up at night? What could undermine your thesis? You know, first of all, I think, you know, any kind of big pullback in the market, small cap is just not going to hold up, right? If it's a risk-off environment, when we get a VIX index of 39, that is definitely something that you know, makes me a little bit worried. The other thing is that, you know, we've got this pro-growth biased and growth is outperformed for 14 or 15 months pretty consistently here. You do get those moments where you get a big reversal, where all of a sudden you say, you know what, I don't want to own the FANG stocks or miracle Grow is something that our firm, we talk about the miracle Grow stocks, but if you get a reversal just because they've worked so well, then that kind of worries me because you see that and then it kind of builds on itself. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we'll have to have you back on to reassess in uh, in a little bit. Thank you again, uh, Stephen DeSantis, Managing Director and Small and Mid-Cap Analyst at Jefferies in New York, joining us here in our 1130 studios. What does the U.S. want out of talks with North Korea leader Kim Jong-un? And who is poised to potentially lose the most? Here to talk about those issues is Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, also a principal with International Market Analysis Limited, uh, based in Washington, D.C. Ariel, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, I want to just start with what is the latest that we know? Uh, there were some reports about Kim Jong-un wanting some sort of peace treaty? What, what he desperately needs is a recognition of his regime. Uh, if you remember, uh, during the Cold War, the U.S. recognized East Germany and West Germany. We have an embassy in Seoul, South Korea. We don't have an embassy in Pyongyang. We don't recognize this murderous regime. And uh, from our point of view, from the American point of view, the most important thing, of course, is disarmament. Uh, we made a mistake. The U.S. made a mistake. The Obama administration made a terrible mistake uh, when we did not demand and did not insist on dismantling the Iranian nuclear program. They can reboot and start enrichment, and we also did not insist on uh, destroying and dismantling the missile program. We should learn from our mistakes. The Korean uh, nuclear program should be dismantled, uh, possibly with the exception of civilian nuclear reactors that do not enrich, and the missile arsenal should, should be dismantled. Beyond that, if the administration comes to the conclusion that we need to recognize them, and South Korea is cool with that, uh, we can do that. There are precedents, as I mentioned, 
is Germany is a precedent. Beyond that, uh, I think they're reaching out not because they're doing well. Um, the labor uh, that they were exporting, uh, slave labor essentially, uh, was kicked out of Europe and kicked out of the Middle East to tens of thousands of people. Um, the fuel supply to North Korea is being squelched, including by China. Uh, so, yeah, uh, they're hurting. But in the past, they tried to go to negotiations to see what kind of concessions they're going to get. And he, here is the test of Mr. Trump. Is he Mr. Deal? Is he um, uh, the author of The Art of the Deal? And is he going to apply this to Kim Jong-un? Uh, Ariel Cohen, uh, would it be considered a, uh, a positive development if the United States were to in some way uh, accede to uh, Kim Jong-un's desire to uh, be made to feel that he was uh, not going to be threatened by uh, outside forces in terms of his control over North Korea and that we could live with a nuclear-armed North Korea? Would that be uh, an objective that would be regarded as positive? There are two elements to your question, uh, Pim. I would say, yes, it's okay for him not to feel threatened. No, it's not okay for him to have nuclear weapons. Full dismantlement of rockets, of rocket-producing capacity, and of the uranium-grade, the the high-grade uranium enrichment or plutonium enrichment. Anything shorter than that they can go back to threatening us and Japan and South Korea with nukes, and that is not acceptable. Uh, Ariel, we were speaking a lot last week about China's role in potential negotiations between the U.S. and North Korea. They are hanging out in the background, and they really are the only ones that could really uh, enforce some kind of permanent defangment. Without their involvement, this won't work. So where are they on this, and uh, what would be or could be their role in ongoing negotiations with the U.S. and North Korea? Anybody who dealt with China, with the Chinese bureaucracy, uh, with Chinese government knows there are many, many layers of meaning uh, that um, China communicates. So to us, they're saying, yes, we do not want a war, we do not want threats, um, but at the same time, uh, strategically and geopolitically, they are using North Korea as a battering ram against Japan, as a threat against the United States. It's very convenient for Beijing to have a nasty, imagine a pit bull on a leash. The question is, do they keep the pit bull on a leash or not? And there were many reports uh, that um, Chairman Xi, uh, President for Life now, it looks like, of China, and the Yang Kim did not have a good relationship. To what extent it's true? Uh, I think this is many, many levels of security clearance above my access or your access. But it looks like China is not interested in destabilizing the Korean Peninsula. It's not interested in reunification of Korea. It's not interested in the war. And there, just in the sort of balance of what I just described, lies the national interest of China. So, yes. They're going to squelch North Korea? No, I don't think they're going to support us in our demand of full nuclear disarmament of Pyongyang. 
any thoughts, Ariel, on the export of nuclear technology from North Korea? Would that be uh, considered a, a positive development if that were to be curtailed? I'm glad you asked that question. North Korea exported nuclear technology to Iran. We know that for sure. And we know that they built in 2005, six a nuclear reactor with the sole purpose of producing weapons-grade plutonium uh, in Syria. That reactor was destroyed uh, in a raid by the Israeli Air Force. Uh, so they are a proliferator. They are a poor country. And they have nuclear technology other countries may want. So, yes, absolutely, we need to insist that uh, exports of nuclear technology would be a sine qua non, an absolute condition for any kind of a deal. By the way, I'm not sure Trump is going to go to that meeting unless North Koreans agree uh, to the list of demands, more or less what I just described, nuclear disarmament, missile disarmament, uh, an embargo on uh, exports of nuclear technology. And I want to say one more thing, and I think it's very important. If this works, number one, it would be a tremendous uh, foreign policy achievement for Trump if he manages to dismantle the North Korean nuclear arsenal. But secondly, it would be the model of what needs to happen vis-a-vis Iran. In other words, nobody says we should not have any agreement with the Iranians, but clearly the dismantlement of the potential that threatens all of our allies in the region, Saudi Arabia, Gulf states, Israel, and potentially Europe, and it's in the far future, the United States. That has to happen vis-a-vis Iran, and their nuclear enrichment capacity needs to be stopped. And if we can do it with North Korea, we can do it with Iran. Thank you very much for being with us. Ariel Cohen is a senior fellow for the Atlantic Council, also a principal for international market analysis based in Washington, D.C. Well, the New York Antiquarian Book Fair has just concluded its four-day stint at the Armory. And uh, here to tell us more about the show and some of its uh, rare offerings is Jonathan Hill, the founder and owner of Jonathan A. Hill Bookseller. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming in. Tell us a little bit about this year's book fair and some of the differences you noticed, not only just about the books and the offerings, but the attendees. Well, this year we hired a really good publicist at last, and we had three times the normal attendance we ever had before, um, which was great. And what was particularly wonderful, it was filled with young people, young people with blue hair, piercings, tattoos. So I would say that the printed book is alive and well. I'm just trying to reconcile uh, the concept of paying thousands of dollars, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars uh, for books at a time when most people seem to say books are increasingly obsolete with the Nook or Kindle. I disagree. First of all, electronic books are a pain in the neck to go through, to get to the index, to find where you were. Book, the printed book is so easy to, to get around. Also, anyone who, as a youth learning to read and their first book that they fell in love with that took them to a different world or taught them something essential, they will always have a sentimental feeling about a, that book, that object. And that continues as they grow up. 
Now, it's not just the uh, the sort of love of the specific book when you talk about the object. It can be its value because it is rare, it is important, it has some historical uh, uh, context. Speak if you can. Let's use an example of one book that I know that you have uh, mm. on offer, and I got a chance to see it uh, and touch it and hold it in my hands yesterday. And this is a book from, I believe it was 1453. 1543. 15, 1543. I knew I was going to get it backwards. 1543, <laughs> before Gutenberg, if that was right. the case. And this has this is a, a book by Copernicus, and uh, it tested my my high school Latin because I could actually read it. Tell us about this particular volume and why it's relevant and what it exemplifies about rare books. Well, the book printed in 1543 and t- entitled De Revolutionibus is the first book which demonstrated scientifically that the Earth is no longer the center of the solar system but that the sun is. And this upset the entire worldview which had existed for 2,000 years previously. It turned everything topsy-turvy and got the Catholic Church immediately upset and just changed everything. And it was a scientific method demonstrating something fundamental for the first time. Jonathan, there certainly is a sentimental and historical value with a lot of these books. There's also uh, an investment value. And I'm wondering how much you've seen sort of the investment aspect of the book business grow, especially as people look for alternative assets. I mean, we're seeing auctions with, uh, you know, the the Christie's of the world uh, increase dramatically. I mean, have you seen a dramatic increase there? Yes. Um, the first copy of Copernicus I sold was about 30 years ago, and that was for $125,000. And this copy I'm offering now for $2 million. And this, yeah, and, and this is one of 300. One of about 300, yes. It's rare in the sense that not many of them are not, are not in private collections, yes. so that it's not like you can just go and order up uh, one mm. of these. Correct. It's the only copy on the market now. And then there's a census of all the copies of Copernicus, and most of them are in libraries. There are very, very few remaining in private hands. So you have to act if you want to get one, and it's a fundamental book. So how many... What's the pool of investors like to spend $2 million on this book? Well, there are a number of private people, but uh, another uh, client who's seriously considering it, uh, it's, a, it's a library. An institution, right? An institution, it's, 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 absolutely. The, the, the book itself, do you believe that the connection to its ownership, the fact that it can be traced all the way back in simple forms, almost like a modern-day version of blockchain, uh, that you know exactly who had it, where they had it, and how it was sold on? Yes, that's a very important thing. It, it, its past history can be traced from the 16th century, shortly after it was printed, up to uh, today, and we know exactly where it's been and throughout a series of owners, and that's a very important thing. We call that provenance, where it's been. And and you don't have to spend $2 million to be a rare book collector. You can spend $10. There are a lot of fascinating collections that you can spend $510, and you can have a tremendous fun and education as well. You can learn as well. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Jonathan Hill is the founder and owner of Jonathan A. Hill uh, Bookseller, and uh, they did just complete their New York Antiquarian Book Fair uh, at the Park Avenue Armory. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us. And I will say, Pim, uh, when I think about children's books in particular, I think about the physical copy and, you know, I think about my children and the physical experience very much is... uh, 
Well, it's important. important, yeah. And it can also be quite remunerative if you collect them carefully and collect what you love. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 